now that we have this peer-to-peer payment network, where like normally that value is being captured by credit card companies and applications and things like that in our current system. Now that it's peer-to-peer and that value can be captured by individuals peer-to-peer. That 5% fee going to your credit card company, that's going to you, baby. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private. And I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up is my new sponsors, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. Also, we have BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. 
Now, listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this, like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. What up, Eric? Pete. Welcome to Bedford, brother. I, uh, I brought you a gift. You got me a gift. That's I brought you a gift. Well, you have to get me a gift because now you're big time. I've already got this book. Yeah, but it's got something special in there for you. Is it some Bitcoin? said something nice. Dear Peter, can't thank you enough for all your support. You're a genuine guy and I feel lucky to associate myself with you. Oh, man, you're going to... Well, you have to give, bring me a gift because uh, now you're big time. You're the first guest who has come with a rider. That is Ooh. true. Yeah. The okay. first guest that came with a rider. Like okay. Danny was like, we can't start the show unless we have whiskey. Eric's, Eric has insisted on you whiskey. You made it pretty clear that whiskey needs to be here. Yeah, man. Whiskey's I'm, here. I'm ready to have a good time today. It's Friday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> it's Friday afternoon, ready to party. Good to see you, man. Thank you for coming to Bedford. What do you think Thanks, of Bedford? Brad. Bedford is badass. Yeah. I... Uh, yeah, within the first, I've been here under 24 hours. I feel like a complete stupid American out here. I mean, I, I know a little bit about the UK. I know the basics, like this is where Harry Potter's from and stuff like that. But um, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's been a little different for me. You uh, you were at the Embankment. The Bankman. The Embankment. It's my favorite Bankman. pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my yeah, favorite yeah. pub. No, I love this place. And the view in the morning when I was having breakfast. Isn't it beautiful? Awesome. That Love river yeah. is amazing. And what did you do last night? Did you sleep or did you have a beer in the bar? Oh, no beer for me. I got in here, got like one hour of sleep on the flight, passed out at eight, woke up at seven, feeling amazing. Perfect. Yeah. Well, listen, we're proud to have you here. Tomorrow we're going to take you to the best football game you've ever been to. The only one. The only one. Your first game is going to be 10th tier English football. Yeah. I'm a I'm a Bedford fan. My dad never let me play soccer growing up, so uh, he didn't let you. Yeah, he didn't let me, man. What? He said you're playing contact sports, buddy. It's a contact sport. Is it? Come on. Is it? Oh, Sammy. Let's not let's let's not get, let's not start off like this. <laughs> um, well, listen, we're going to take you to a game. We're top of the league. Uh, hopefully, we win. Stay top of the league. If we don't, we blame you. Um, <laughs> but I've uh, instructed our manager to mercilessly destroy our opposition. Oh, I can't wait. All for you, brother. I'm going to get rowdy. Well, listen, good to have you here. Uh, the last time you came on the show, you made a fantastic episode. It was very popular. Uh, lots of great feedback. I think straight away we were like, when are we going get, to get you back on? And uh, we're grateful for you to come out here to the UK and make a show. And uh, this is a super interesting topic, man. Um, I've read your article twice now. I just reread it. I'm planning to keep my keep my spouse in a safe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't, don't shit on my drafts. These are my drafts. <laughs> a it took bit, some humility to bring those. A up. little bit of punctuation. Okay, tell people about what you're working on because obviously we're going to talk about this. Uh, well, I call it an article, but it could potentially be a book. I think it should maybe be a book. <laughs> <laughs> you prepared for another book? You know, it's funny as I got, cause it's, it's totally morphed. I think I started researching writing about a lot of this at the beginning of July. And, um, 
you know, initially I was just planning on writing about the, you know, applications and different scaling mechanisms of Bitcoin and then, you know, how that's going to emerge as a financial system over time. And just, you know, looking at it categorically by all these different dimensions. And then I started to see a lot of information come up about credit and what credit looks like in the future on Bitcoin and um, what the different theories are for, you know, why that would be good or bad, depending on how it emerges. And I was like, you know, I had a little bit around theory that I was getting into, but I was like, we need to do a bit more of a deep dive into some of that. So it ended up becoming quite a bit more theoretical around what the future of these credit systems will look like. And then, you know, when I was writing, I was like, okay, well, you know, out of everything, I'm going to focus on the Lightning Network and how Bitcoin scales with that and what the ultimate applications for banking systems on that will be or potentially could be. And, you know, once I started digging into that, yeah, I mean, to your point, it could be. This may could be the start of maybe, um, you know, the eighth property or something like that. But um, hmm. yeah, I, I don't know. There's There's quite a bit that needs to be written about here. And there's so many topics that I'm covering that are, you know, there's a lot that I'm writing about and I say, hey, you know, I'm proposing this idea or potentially this, you know, um, consideration for people to talk about. But I don't know this, you, you know, you, there's a ton of research that needs to go into a lot of these areas I'm digging into. Well, I, I hope you turn it into a book. I think this is a topic I am particularly interested in. We get a lot of uh, emails in with people saying, can you make a show post hyperbitcoinization? Like, what does the world look like? What yeah. is the world I'm living in? How, what is yeah. money? How is money operating? You know, what is the banking system? Um, for you to start putting together a thesis about what it could be and you know what is credit in this system, I think super interesting. I'm not sold on the idea of full reserve. I think mm-hmm. that comes with challenges. And I, I don't think we've ever actually had a, a time when we have had a full reserve system. That, that's correct. There's always been fractional right. reserve lending. It's right. a natural part of any economy. I think Nick Carter said that. Yeah, it's, um, and, and, you know, there's uh, the, you know, I, I, I frequently, the first time, it, it never really like occurred to me, that thought. Um, but when I was reading George Selgin, there, he, you know, he frequently, you know, promotes that concept. And, um, and I think the right way to think about it is that we've seen institutions that have been depository institutions, um, pure depository institutions. And we've seen institutions that have existed on some form of, you know, full reserve, but those are typically ones that have been relegated. Mm -hmm. And really the way that you want to think about it is what is the system, um, you know, has there been some sort of significant, whether it's by geography or some sort of significant banking system that emerged that operated on a full reserve through private markets for a significant period of time? And we can definitely say that like, that's never happened. We always had some sort of emergence towards, uh, you know, some form of fractional reserve system, but then that also always had some sort of emergence. You know, these systems always would centralize further and further, and then we'd end up with fiat central banking at some point. And um, so, like, that's kind of, um, you know, a lot of people associate some of the issues with banking systems and credit with this concept of fiat central banking, which I think is important to, like, really make a distinction between these two things and say, okay, well, there's a fiat central banking system and that creates massively expanded credit and for a persistent period of time that has very horrible consequences, you know, some very long period down the line. And uh, well, throughout, and then it eventually, you know, falls apart. But, um, you know, when these 
a lot of people say like, okay, well, fractional reserve banking is a part of that. So all of fractional reserve banking is bad. And I'm not really making the argument that I think it's good, but it's very far different and distinct from you know, fiat central banking. And when something emerges in a private market, and that's kind of this idea behind free banking, is we have seen fractional reserve systems emerge and you know, be relatively successful for extended periods of time in private markets through voluntary exchange among people. When that happens, the question is as well, who's, you know, what's the alternative? Who's there to stop it? Because it, it, you know, on the on the Austrian side of people who are like very, you know, 100% full reserve or um, fractional reserve banking is fraud, that side, some of the famous economists, you know, like Mises um, and, uh, and I think Hayek as well, they were, I, I know for a fact it was Mises, so we'll just stick with that. But, you know, they, they would advocate to say like, no, we should have the government get involved and ensure that fractional reserve banking won't exist, which I disagree with. You shouldn't have any sort of government intervention into the system to ultimately restrain it from having fractional reserve. That's no better than just having private voluntary exchange. So like a lot of people in the Austrian school who I think say, fraud um, or uh, fractional reserve banking is fraud and that's bad. I think it's way worse to have the government get involved in private markets and start trying to shut that banking system down when it's a voluntary exchange among people. And there's a lot more to talk about around that point. Of course. Um, But I think that that's probably where I come out on like the ethics of a lot of it is, you know, freedom to choose, allow the people to choose. And depending on how these systems ultimately emerge for Bitcoin, because um, if you look at the history and say like, okay, well, floor reserves never really emerged. Fractional reserve has emerged. Um, it hasn't really per- perfectly ever had a great free banking system. There's, you know, kind of like 60 total observations that people have studied that had like, you know, fell into like certain constraints of there was private monetary phenomenon being issued. There was no lender of last resort. And then within that group of like 60, there's about six that are very popular people have studied. And um, and then, you know, the two best examples are typically considered to be like the Scottish free banking system during the 18th, uh, 17th, 18th century, or 18th, 19th century, and then the um, Canadian free banking system, which was over a similar period and ended, you know, subsequently after like the Great Depression. Right. Um, well, listen, I'm going to be massively out of my depth with some of this, mm-hmm. but the idea to me that you have one or the other, just it seems to be the wrong way to look at it. I, it feels to me like you could have fractional reserve and full reserve banking side by side, and similar to any kind of investment, there's different levels of risk but le- different levels of return. And uh, whenever you have a balanced portfolio, you have medium, you know, low, medium, high risk, and the returns reflect that. It would feel to me that if there is uh, full reserve and fractional banking alongside it, they come with different risks and trade-offs. Full reserve would have higher interest rates, you know, um, fractional reserve would have lower interest rates and those rates and would be dependent upon reputation of the banks as well. But you would have a, almost a decentralized risk whereby if one bank was to fail in this scenario, it would only affect the small customers when, within that area. Whereas at the moment, we have a system-wide issue where if there's an issue with the, uh, with the, the fractional reserve or the issue with the currency we have at the moment, it affects everyone. The contagion affects everyone. Yep. Now, I'm out of my depth, but but that's my observation. Yeah, it, it, and that's kind of um, that that that's definitely the truth of you know if we have a free banking system and, and then that you know once again that's very theoretical. We've had some systems that have been like lightly regulated banking by the theory of free banking. Those you know kind of 
very, you know, heavily promoted by uh, George Selgin and Lawrence H. White. Um, you know, that in its purest form, we haven't really observed historically. So it's very theoretical, about as theoretical as full reserve banking systems is too, because we haven't seen that either. So both of these categories are very theoretical that we're talking about. Um, but I think that, you know, when we discuss what these could look like and how they'd emerge and then how they'd emerge on top of Bitcoin, I think that, you know, it's good to first kind of like really just understand the theory. And, you know, when I'm talking about like a full reserve system, it's, uh, and there's there's disagreement around semantics about a lot of this stuff, but there's kind of like a few different dimensions across the way that you can think of it, but you could say like, okay, well, we have a certain amount, we'll talk about it in terms of like Bitcoin, but you know, you have a certain, you have the 21 million Bitcoin that exist, and there are banking institutions in which people will deposit that Bitcoin, and the nature of how they're depositing that Bitcoin is important because the, depending on how they structure that, it could have a maturity mismatching or not. So if you have a demand deposit account with a bank versus a time deposit account would change whether or not that bank is ultimately a fractional reserve bank. So if it was a bunch of banks and they only did time deposit accounts where like you go to the bank and you say, okay, I'm going to put, you know, give you guys 10 Bitcoins and it's, we're going to lock it in for the next year. And they, they're like, okay, we're going to give you this rate of interest. And then they're going to turn around and they're going to take those 10 Bitcoins and they're going to structure a loan that is for the next year. And then they're going to earn a rate of return. They're going to pay a portion of that return to you. And then there's a small percentage that they're going to take. So that means there's no maturity mismatching. The length of the credit that they're extending is the same of the um, you know asset that they're holding on their books. So... The next step would be like, okay, they say, well, we'll have demand deposit accounts. We're going to go make a bunch of loans. Most people aren't going to pull their deposits out at any given point in time. So what we can just tell everybody, like, you guys can withdraw it whenever you want. We only know like 5% of you are going to do that. So we're going to extend credit, assuming that only 5% of you are going to do that. And that doesn't mean that they're issuing money that's credit. It just means that there's a maturity mismatch between what they're doing now, which is technically a fractional reserve. They have a liability that has a different maturity than um, you know the assets that they have. But they do that knowing that a certain amount of people are always going to be deposited with them. Mm-hmm. They, they, they would understand the kind of like the risk tolerance on what the demand is for people to withdraw their Bitcoin. Right. Uh, I think this is what uh, actually happened with BlockFi recently. Yep. In that they, there was no fractional reserve with BlockFi, but what happened was they had maturity mismatching in terms of, you know, every, when Celsius collapsed, lots of people were trying to call in their Bitcoin and withdraw it, but a lot of that was out to loan. Right. Right. And, and in the real world, it's not like it's incredibly easy to run a loan book and have your maturities be perfectly matched. It's actually yeah. kind of a challenging thing to do in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, th- these things are very common in finance. It's a question of, you know, where's the market demand and how can we maximize our you know rate of return for the amount of risk that we're accepting and whether or not we can optimize that between the people that we're getting money from it or not. And, um, and everybody's kind of playing that game. But, you know, for, for the sake of like definitions, um, you know, we can think of full reserve as like full time deposit accounts and whether or not that would exist or if we'd have demand deposits. And it's like, well, we're probably going to have people who want demand deposit accounts. So like if that's what you want to call fractional reserve banking and it's like you could totally make the argument that you can call that fractional reserve banking, then like that's probably going to exist. Well, it does exist within the world of crypto, but the way that I'm writing this is from the perspective of if we had a Bitcoin native, hyper Bitcoinized world that we're dealing with. And, and that's still very far down the line just because 
for us to ultimately get to that point, Bitcoin has to become a medium of exchange and unit of account. And it's that, that, that's a very far away vision. It's And here's the tricky part around that too, is that it's not all going to happen exactly at the same time. Like to become a medium of exchange unit of account, it needs to continue being a store of value. We also need to have scaling mechanisms like the Lightning Network build out. So it happens in tandem. Um, but ultimately, um, eventually we're going to hit a point where if we do get into hyper-Bitcoinization, it is going to be the premier medium of exchange of the world. In 2050. So, in 2050, yeah. You know, whenever whenever it is. But, uh, you know, so like once we get to that point, um, I'm trying to think from the perspective of like what these systems would look like because it's going to be very hard. And this is a bit of a separate point kind of going more into like the stablecoin logic of today. But um, right now we've seen this huge prominent. Everybody wanted to create like, you know, Bitcoin started. It's like we need to have economic value, or at least the founders had this vision um, that we need to have economic value that's digitally native. We need digitally native monetary value. If we are on the Internet and we want to have the ability to organize one another, then we need to have a native form of value to trade because you can't organize unless you can trade. And if you are dependent upon the physical world for doing that, then you're screwed. We need to have digitally native money. And that was the point of Bitcoin was to bootstrap that. And that's going to take a lot of time for that to occur. But then we had, you know, other sources come along and with like Ethereum and they're like, okay, well, we have these different stable coins. All of these stable coins have the risk of being, you know, linked to the traditional payment system. And like DAI was an example of a stable coin where they're like, no, we need it all to be digitally native so that we don't have to deal with this risk of being linked to our traditional financial system. And DAI ultimately had to renege on that because they're like, well, we're going to over collateralize it by 150%. That's how we'll make it stable. And then it was still too volatile, and they ultimately had to renege on that. Now they're 50% backed by USDC, and you know they're kind of freaking out a bit with um, you know what's going on with all these sanctions. But you know the point is is that with the current like stablecoin emergence that's coming into the market, and we see that that's always going to be physically linked to the traditional system yeah. in some form. So we so we need to get rid of that, which is the whole point I'm saying around like. It's going to be a while until we legitimately have a full-blown medium exchange unit of account that's digitally native. Um, and once we get to that point, that's when we're really going to see how these systems are emerging. So like what we're seeing today, a lot of that system, the emergence of things that exist because we have stable coins involved in this system. And we will for a while, for good reason. Because they're useful. Right. But they, they are basically PayPal on the blockchain. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're useful, and that's going to be a while, and that's going to be something growing in, a, in another direction. There's a lot of people in a lot of countries who are going to get access to disintermediated, disintermediated payment infrastructure because of that, and they're going to get access to the dollar when they need it. Like, that's a good thing. Um, but like this long-term vision of the future financial system, um, that's something that once Bitcoin gets to this hyper-Bitcoinized level, I think the way that we see systems build out is going to be probably vastly different from the way things are now. And, um, and yeah, so that's kind of like the baseline that I'm really working off of when I get into some of these definitions. And then, you know, we kind of like, we talked about full reserve. Well, well would it be a good structure to, to follow the article? So talk about 2050. Yeah. Then look at a full reserve, what the trade-offs are, and yeah. then look at the free banking, and then we'll get into the Lightning Network. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to 2050. Hopefully I'm still alive. Uh, what's that, 28 years? You should be good. Be seventy. I will be my father's age now. I'll be seventy-two. Ooh, seventy-two-year-old T. You're going to be a cool seventy-two-year-old. You'll be what, like thirty-six? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be seventy-two if I'm still alive. 
Bedf- Raoul Bedford will have just uh, completed the quadruple for the fifth year <laughs> in a row. <laughs> Having been on a Bitcoin standard, the most well capitalized team in the world. Manchester United playing in the championship. Yeah, I mean, that might be next year. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking could be your shit. <laughs> Do you know much about our football? No. Have you heard of Manchester United? Though? I have. Yeah, everyone's heard of them. Yeah. So they were essentially the most dominating f- force in British football. And for a period, parts of European football, they never really, they never achieved what they should have in Europe. They Whoa. Well, come on. How many Champions Leagues did they win? Three, I think. Ever. Ever. Yeah, I okay. Think so. Yeah, but like Real Madrid win three in like in five years. And, yeah. and I'm just saying they didn't dominate Europe like they dominated. They don't have a tough league though, do they? Their Premier League. I'm just saying they were a they were a disappointment. Alex Ferguson would be disappointed. He would be. Do you think? I think so. I think. I mean, they got to like three finals in four years or whatever it was. Yeah, but um, and lost to the best, probably the best club team of all time, Barcelona. Okay, but we're not talking about second places here. We're talking about anyway. Danny's, Danny's <laughs> That's been a different. Def- Danny's been defensive, <laughs> but they dominated British football for 15 years. Yeah, and were one of the top two teams for basically 20 years. Mm. Now they're absolute dog shit. They're bottom of the league. They've lost their two opening games. They don't look like they can win. They are all over the place. I just felt like bringing it up. (laughs) (laughs) So who are those guys that were talking shit to you on Twitter when you first made this announcement for Real Bedford? They support Bedford Town. Oh. Yeah, our neighbors. The noisy neighbors. They're three divisions above us. They're still talking (gasps) shit about us constantly. Cool. It's relentless. Cool. Like everything we do. It's like when we lose, they laugh, and now we're winning. It's like, well, you just bought the best. Play. We don't have the best budget in the league, by the way. Right. Like every single thing, thing we do, they attack us. But like, whatever. You know, they just lost. We've won both our opening games. They've just lost. So, so they're three. They're three above you, and then the top is how many above you? Top so, eight. so Premier League, mm-hmm. Championship, League One, League Two. That's the professional leagues. Okay. Then you go into non-league, uh-huh. which we, we'll call steps. So you have national conferences. Step one. You go step two, step three, step four, yeah. step five, step six. We're in step six. So we are six promotions from the Football League. Cool. Nine promotions from the Premier League. Cool. Um, they are, we're three promotions from them. Yeah. But what happens is after the National League, the divisions split. So then you've got uh, National North and South, and they're playing to get into the National League. Mm. And they split again and again and again. So it's a pyramid under that. And okay. the reason being is they they want to keep things geographic. Mm-hmm. So Manchester United can go anywhere in the country to play a game. We never have to travel more than like an hour. Gotcha. So it becomes regional. Um, gotcha. And so if we win the league this year, we go up or if we get in the playoffs. Um, I'll, t- I'll talk to you about it all tomorrow. So cool. It's, it's a different type of football. But Back to 2015. The t- yeah, the two things you need to remember are... Well, one thing you need to remember is that Manchester United are dog shit at the moment, and it's it's <laughs> hilarious. They ab- they got absolutely destroyed by Brentford, who a few years ago were playing in League Two, just a small little tiny team. And Manchester United just bought their best player and lost four 0 to them because they're fucking terrible. Holy shit! Yeah, thanks for that. How you doing, David? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so 2050, what's going on in the world? We're hyper Bitcoinized. What does that mean? I think that if we get to the hyper Bitcoinized state by then, then you know we're we're going to see some sort of combination of different systems, and um, and I think we're going to see full reserve. We might see full reserve with maturity mismatching, and then we might see um, fiduciary media being issued as well. And that's like not only is there maturity mismatching, but people are issuing their own notes that are beyond the amount um, of actual reserves that they have. Do you think this is a global phenomenon? Like every country will eventually get there? 
I don't, I guess, you know, a lot of the focus on the writing, it's kind of just like an assumption. Okay. And and, and I think that, yeah, you know, will will we ultimately get there? No, I don't think every country is going to get there. I don't think North Korea is going to get there, you know, like (laughs) that's not going to happen. But um, yeah, I think like I, or I, I'm making the bet that I think in the next, you know, 30 years, we're going to see Bitcoin have a very significant role in the world. Um, and, and I can only imagine if it gets to, you know, any, if we get a few multiples of materiality greater, um, you know, as a global store value, then I think that we could ultimately get, I mean, it's something, it is that meme of gradually then suddenly, like these things will eventually occur and, and we're trending towards it. So I, I I feel confident in it. I think it's the best bet you can make in anything right now. It's a great bet to make. Okay. Yeah. So we're in 2050. We only have Bitcoin. Yep. We're so, investing in Bit- with Bitcoin. We're buying with Bitcoin. Everything's yep. with Bitcoin. Everything's with Bitcoin. You, uh, you're thinking about everything in terms of price of Bitcoin. Um, you've got like your investing accounts, and you're like, okay, you know, I got my I got my Bitcoin savings. That's my fail safe. I got some under the mattress that I keep, um, and then I got some amounts that I keep in like a multi-sig and then I've got my investment accounts and then some of those might be, you know, just a Bitcoin position that's earning interest. And that's effectively like the new concept of a banking account. Um, And then you've got, you know, actual investment accounts because at this point in time, Bitcoin is just this deflationary asset. It's earning a bit in purchasing power every year, but it's not really earning you all that much. And you want to make some long-term bets on some things and you want to assume a lot more risk so that you can earn a higher rate of return. And that's kind of how the world would work, um, you know, from the personal finance level on a Bitcoin standard. But a quick weird, weird question. Um, why does purchasing power always go up with Bitcoin? So that, that's a good point. And is it only with population growth? That, yeah, and that, that, that's a good point. So that's not a certainty. Um, it's, uh, I, I assume that it will. And basically the idea is if we have a supply increase in Bitcoin, so 2050, it's going to have what an inflation rate of like, I don't know, 0.05% or something like that. Who knows? But um, It's pretty much the same amount. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be very small. And so I would believe that productivity is going to be growing more rapidly than the supply rate of Bitcoin, because technically Bitcoin's supply rate is disinflationary, right? Yeah. Um, so and if, we're incentivized to save. We'll be prudent. Right, right. It'd be prudent to save. So like theoretically, let's assume that productivity were to remain completely flat for the next century then Bitcoin's disinflationary supply would be um, something that's inflationary to it, disinflationary. But because productivity is probably going to grow much faster than that, then we would probably see a deflationary environment. And then, you know, when you go into concepts and like Jeff Booth's book around general trends in uh, in technology and how that's also going to be pushing productivity much more rapidly too. Do you think we'll have the equivalent of Bitcoin M1 and Bitcoin M2 in that we have Bitcoin sats which are in circulation and maybe Bitcoin M2 is sats which is time lock contracts, wallets which haven't moved for a long time that's therefore considered savings. Yeah, I think that, um, so the way that I see a lot of this building out is um, I think that we're going to have kind of like a, and this is, a lot of this is based around what Nick Patia proposed in 2018 for the Lightning Network and how we have like this emergent form of capital markets that's emerging on top of it. And we're going to have these like Lightning Network banks. And basically the idea is that like, if you think about how interest rates exist in our current world, um, 
we have like a risk curve and, and a lot of people like look at like a yield curve and like that's just like one portion of all of it theoretically, but it's like we have all the assets in the world and they're all in these varying points of risk and we have a curve that shows that. And the further down the curve they go, uh, you go, you have a you know more riskier asset that you're looking at. And we have some of these like base assets that are referred to as being like risk-free. And there's a lot of reasons why that's not the right word for them and they're not risk-free, but that would be like US Treasury securities or you know, the LIBOR rate out in London. Um, and that's just like these interest rates are like the Fed funds rate, you know, things that are between different primary broker dealers and the way that they trade overnight with themselves is considered to be, you know, risk-free to very low risk. And they're used as a reference rate. Where like anybody who's quoting debt, they'll say like, okay, we're going to take LIBOR plus a certain amount of credit. If we're going to give you a loan, that way, if interest rates themselves start to move, we're still covered if they go up to a degree. And then we put a spread on top of that because you have higher credit risk associated with you than, you know, the LIBOR rate does. So that would be going down the curve as somebody who has a credit spread added on top of, you know, a reference rate. And what Batia proposes is that we're probably going to see a new emergent form of reference rate within the Lightning Network because we have a market of liquidity for Bitcoin that's emerging on it. And people are paying different rates for different reasons. And I think like the really salient observation from a lot of that is that it's, it, it's very distinct from how it currently works in our system because with like LIBOR and all of that, there's some form of like counterparty risk that exists in that basic reference rate, like the lowest rate of risk that you could assume um, without, you know, just holding on to cash. But um, so because there's counterparty risk associated with that, in this new system with Bitcoin, like the base reference rate would be a rate that you earn on the Lightning Network for just routing payments. And there's no counterparty risk associated with that. So what it means is that like we, it's like if you were to take like from zero to one on the risk curve, zero being no risk at all to one being the reference rate, we can now zoom in and we've created like new compartments of risk effectively within that curve. And we said like, okay, um, now you can just assume a little bit of risk of like security risk of where you're, you know, storing your Bitcoin. So like if you want to participate in the Lightning Network, then in order to earn fees from it from routing, you have to lock it into a contract through a hot wallet. So there's technically security risk because now you're in a hot wallet as opposed to cold storage. So at the bottom is really like cold storage. And then you move up and you say, okay, we're going to earn a little bit in routing fees. Um, we're assuming more risk. We're getting paid a rate of return now for doing that as opposed to just like increasing purchasing power of cold storage Bitcoin. Um, so that's kind of like the general idea. And then we have like a new risk curve that's building out. And it means that like, so at the bottom we have the lightning reference rate, and that's just like earning routing fees. And I can like explain that process. But um, And then there's the uh, liquidity leasing is kind of like another layer that we have on that. And like with lightning, one of the big issues and limitations of it, and you know, a primary criticism is you have two different forms of liquidity that exist. It's really easy for anybody to go like open up a white lightning wallet if they want to make payments. Um, you just put your Bitcoin into the wallet, you go make payments to people. But if you want to receive payments, you're limited. And that's because when you're setting up this network, one of the primary constraints around Lightning um, is that you have a capacity limit on your channel. And it's necessary for the network to exist to have these capacity limits, but they're restraining in terms of how much liquidity that you can have. So if you go and you say, okay, I'm going to set up, you know, me and you, we set up a Lightning channel and I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to put, you know, a Bitcoin in and you're just like, cool, man, like you put a Bitcoin in, I'm not putting anything in. Then I'll, I'll have my side and I have one Bitcoin and that means I have outbound capacity of one Bitcoin, aka I can make payments to you or to somebody else of one Bitcoin. Um, and then you don't have any outbound capacity because you haven't put anything in. So you're, you're at zero on that, but you have a lot of inbound capacity. You can receive payments up to one Bitcoin. So because you have this like empty side of the channel, you can receive a lot of payments. So like the problem is, is there's not a lot of people in the network who are just opening something up and sitting there with zero who can receive payments. So if like you're a merchant and you want to go accept lightning, you have to go find somebody who's going to open up a channel with you, put, you know, a bunch of capacity in there. Because if you're, you know, accepting say a hundred thousand dollars worth of payments a day, then you need somebody who's going to open a channel with you for a hundred thousand dollars on their leg. And they'll let you just sit there and receive that amount of payments every day. So like, that's one of the challenging things with lightning is dealing with inbound liquidity or um, inbound capacity. And when people are looking for inbound liquidity, there's things like, you know, lightning pool and magma that are emerging. And those are like these markets that are allowing people to lease that amount of liquidity. So they can say, okay, like I'm Peter, I got, you know, a shitload of Bitcoins in a soccer team and I'm going to go post my Bitcoins to the um, market like Magma and you can lease them for lightning capacity from me. And, you know, I'm going to earn some sort of rate of return on that. So people can do that too. And when you're doing that, like liquidity channel leasing, that allows you to also earn another rate of very like low risk interest as well. So like people are earning these new rates of interest before they're like even getting to the level of like, you know, any sort of actual off-chain lending or anything like that. And, um, and that's one of the really interesting mechanisms that's going to emerge because, you know, there's some interesting properties it has. One, like people can do this um, themselves if they want. It's very technically challenging. And that's why we're probably going to see lightning banks and these lightning banks are going to be optimizing around that because the Lightning Network, it has it creates an incentive for you to you know connect channels to other Lightning peers and to provide liquidity to the network and earn a rate of return. So like people are going to specialize in that. They're going to have scaled operations. Is and, that a centralizing force on like the Lightning Network? Yeah. Is there a risk with that? Yeah, sir. Uh, that's the thing. Is like um, sure. I mean, it depends on how you define risk, right? But like. Yeah, it is like theoretically, you know, full stop. It is like a risk, but there's a, there's nuance to the idea of like, well, you know, how would any sort of infrastructure operate within a system anyways? And like, if you have a better idea for some sort of purely decentralized way to get that type of transaction through, but then like, you know, by all means, Fine. but it's just like, there's going to need to be some degree of centralization. Every solution we have, whether it's like, you know, federated side chains or something like that, there, there's a lot of centralization, centralization that comes into it. I think that like what they're building with lightning, it's still possible for people to like operate peer to peer. It's possible. It's challenging, requires work, and it's probably not going to happen that way. And uh, there's probably going to be like some type of like lightning banking system that emerges and that's going to be a risk, but at least it's on the second layer. Yes, and that's you wouldn't you, you wouldn't entertain it on the base layer. So that's right. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I mean, what it sounds like to me is that even within Bitcoin, you're going to be able to have a diversified portfolio of investments, whereby you you have the ability to provide uh, liquidity to the Lightning Network, and you can earn a you know, slow risk. You yep. earn a small amount of sats, but at the same time, you could become a capital allocator on the base chain, and you know maybe take on higher risk but have a higher return. But you can actually have a diversified Bitcoin portfolio. 
right of of investments or sources of interest and income right and in like who knows when all that's going to come but like the theoretical idea is that if we have you know taro gets built out but hold on but it, it kind of exists now you can provide liquidity to lightning now you could you can lend out your bitcoin now i mean yep it exists already it's just not a mature market yeah yeah so like lightning exists but i think with like actual um like asset issuance. Oh yes. You know, that's, that's going to be a ways out, but like theoretically the idea and the question too is like, do we need it to exist like that? And I think that, yeah, I think one of the, cause like, I remember I was, I was talking to uh, like a lightning dev at one point and they're kind of like, well, why, why do we need to have, you know, some asset issuance on this? And, um, and I think the answer that, you know, makes sense to me is, you know, right now we have like, if you want to go on a stock, then there is a centralized registry of securities that exists. And that's the thing is like, we could have that in the future and you trade Bitcoin for it and there's a centralized registry for those. But if it can emerge in like a, you know, digitally native way on this infrastructure and these things can be conducted peer-to-peer. Maybe for stocks, it doesn't make as much sense um, because those are going to need to be like regulated in some form. But I think for like other assets that can emerge, it's going to probably enable a new form of like asset issuance and other types of assets people can issue within, you know, the economy in a peer-to-peer way. So I think like the primary advantage is like for the asset issuance to be like native to the lightning layer, um, is if you want to have peer-to-peer asset trade. And then for some of those things, it may not ever actually make sense because we want to have a centralized registry. Um, but you know, nonetheless, there's going to be a lot of new assets that'll probably exist on Lightning Network, and you'll have like, you know, you'll you'll have your entire portfolio account um, all existing within a new financial ecosystem. Okay. Which is fascinating. Yeah. A Taro is super interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about for, a full reserve banking system on Bitcoin. Um, let's talk about how it works, how it operates, what its limitations are. Because for me, I struggle with full reserve, even though I fully understand why people are anti-fractional reserve, but I struggle with it and I sometimes think it perhaps puts limitations on humans and what humans want to do. Like uh, a question I've asked a few economists previously is that uh, despite the negative consequences of this credit-based system, this credit-based system on crack that we've had over this last couple of decades, has it led to humans advancing further? Has the availability of cheap credit meant we have advanced the... And I think it's on specific measures, but have we advanced our you know, technical evolution because companies have had access to keep cheap credit. And and I'm I'm almost certain it's true, but it's come with these trade-offs. I I, I feel like uh, a fractional reserve, fully fractional reserve system means it's harder to get credit because it's more expensive. Uh, and therefore, you know, we, we're going to have less competition with the market, less development, but maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, so I think that, you know, when you're thinking about a full reserve system and, you know, what some of the trade-offs are for it, I think, you know, when you break this down, number one, and I and I think it's important to, like, think about this problem because, or potential problem, it's theoretical in nature at this point, but I think that it'll probably be one of the major forms of criticism of Bitcoin as it continues to scale, not in the way that it is now, but in a new form, Um because it was a major criticism uh, against full reserve economics proponents. Um, so like in the, it was uh, 1960, Milton Friedman did this like pretty well-known estimate of if the world existed on a, um, 
you know, full reserve gold standard, then about two and a half percent of the net national product, which is very similar to GDP, it's a little bit less, it removes depreciation, but like, you know, to think, you know, probably say 2% of GDP would have been committed towards gold. Now for a global system, 2% is no small amount. And, and that was a huge argument that a lot of economists had against, you know, any sort of full reserve system was there like, if we were to do that, so much of our productive capacity would be focused on it. Now, on the Bitcoin side of things, people would very quickly be like, you know, we're expending this energy to secure a monetary network, and that's incredibly valuable, and we don't want to cut costs around that. And, and I, while I completely understand that argument, Number one, I think it's important to understand this so that you have a counter argument. Number two, I think that there's going to be some form of optimization that'll exist around that. Because the way that people need to think about this question, and I haven't formed an answer to it, this is one of like those open-ended questions that I got to in my writing, but it's just like, okay, so if the cost of producing the monetary asset was the pri- one of the primary criticisms of the gold standard, then that's going to be one of the primary criticisms of the Bitcoin standard. And when we think about that question, it's just like, well, we already know that like, the cost to attack the Bitcoin network, I think, and there's different estimates um, out there, and there's like you know, like a co- there's that cost to attack website or whatever. It's like forty billion dollars and like run rate thirty million a day or something. Yeah, but it also you have to consider the practicality of it as well. So there's the economic exactly. cost, but the reality of can you exactly. secure the ASICs? So, yeah, so like it's even more complicated than that. Totally. Yeah. So like there's the quantification of if yeah. we had everything in front of us tomorrow and supply chains were capable of producing it, then. Um, this is what it would cost, theoretically. I actually think we're at that point now where it's it's almost unfeasible for it to happen. Right. And because you and I talked a little bit about this, and I, I agree on the last podcast. And like, I agree. Um, I, I think it would be incredibly, incredibly, I'm not going to say like impossible, but it'd be incredibly hard to execute. And then just getting the governments to actually organize to do that without anybody defecting. Yeah, I mean, so co- coordination's difficult, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, accumulation of the ASICs, so or right. the hash rates, you could do it. Yeah. Being able to deploy it with do that in stealth mode so people don't realize you're attacking because once they realize they're also then there will be defense and yeah. reactions. So I just I think we're at the point where it's not that possible to do it now. Right. So that leads to the next question. And that question is like, okay, so what is the optimal security budget for Bitcoin? You know, what is the amount of energy, labor, capital that we're expending to secure this network that we need to protect it from any sort of attack on the network? And, you know, nothing more than that would matter. And there's, I think that there's a lot more research that needs to go into that because that'll be a huge question um, if we have a full reserve standard. And if, you know, what we're saying right now, if it's already so hard to attack the network and, you know, Bitcoin goes 100x in price over the next three decades, then what's hash rate going to go? How much unnecessary capacity is ultimately going to be sitting there? And once again, it comes down to what's unnecessary. But if we're already getting close to a point where its security budget is getting there, maybe it needs to double, and then we're 100% certain. Maybe it needs to triple. You know, whatever that number is, we're likely to see some sort of point where it's probably far beyond, in terms of hash rate, anything that we'd ever actually need to protect it from you know, security at that level. There's a lot of other attack vectors that we could talk about, but just like just within focus of this area. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that's kind of one of the interesting arguments because um, when you think about that from a full reserve system, that's probably going to be used as justification for fractional reserve. And people are going to say, like, okay, we have this network that is consuming all this energy. 
what, what if we start using these other tokens that don't have as high cost of energy or something? And, we, and banks would be like, look, it's all backed by Bitcoin. We're just you know, securing it on a different side of the network um, and, and, and we're holding it here. So like, if, people are, if we have a, con, um, a competing form of monetary media, I could definitely see some sort of emergence coming for that reason. And people are going to say, like, um, you know, use fiduciary media, use this credit backed money of these banking institutions. That way we're saving on costs for a lot of other things. And it's not as if there is no merit to that argument either. And the question is, is like, well, if it was a let's assume it was some sort of free banking system. We got to kill this motherfucker. Don't use Eric's book. Yeah. Motherfucker, how does it know? That was your gift. Sorry. It's the H property. How does a fly do that? That that book was flying through the air silently. And that fucking fly knew. Anyway. Oh, he's coming back to you now, man. Oh man, we get we gotta get rid of this thing. We won't. He's smart. He's smart. You can't edit this out. <laughs> we can't edit. Eric just tried to get it, and he was like two meters away from it. <laughs> you need the chopsticks, yeah. Mr. Miyagi. Do you know that? Have yeah. you even seen the? Crime? I mean, I've not seen it. Let, what? I mean, I've not. I know the. Did you get? I've seen the. I know the reference, but I've not seen. Crime. You've not seen. Have you, Eric? No. Yeah. See, what? it's a generation. Oh yeah, but hold. Yeah, hold on. Have you seen Back to the Future? No. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, We're like pretty much the same age. Cool. Eric's a couple of years younger. <laughs> Have you not seen Back to the Future? You know, I try to watch those old movies sometimes, and they're not old. And I'm just like, old I'm movies are like Gone with the Wind's an old movie. I'm just like bored. Why? <laughs> gone, gone with the Wind is an old movie. Back to the Future is not an old movie. <laughs> They've not seen the Karate Kid, Jeremy. And they have no discipline. They have no. They have bad parents and no discipline. All right. Do you consider the Matrix an old movie? Oh, no. Phew. I grew up on that shit. Well, that's like you calling right. Back to the Future an old movie. Like, yeah. God, I'm too old for this shit. Like my cousins who were like early 20s would call The Matrix an old movie. Yeah. Yeah. God, man, I'm so old. I mean, it came out when I was eight. Yeah. It's quite old. Yeah. Did Back to the Fu- were you alive when Back to the Future came out? I don't know what year was it released. <laughs> Got to be the 70s, 80s? Well, definitely not then. Uh, 85, yeah, no. Jesus. That's, oh, that's not fair. Not even close. So... Look up when the first Alien came out. Because you've seen the first Alien. <laughs> I have, yeah. But that's my dad was on that one. Your dad should have been on Back to the Future. Your dad hasn't done his duty as a father. Uh, I mean, that was, no, 1979. Yeah. I was born in the 70s. Holy shit. We've taken a big sidetrack here. I know. I'm an old man. <laughs> well, we, Eric insisted on whiskey. <laughs> that means two things are happening. I'm not really paying attention to anything he's saying. And I'm thinking about... Movies. I've got a question on this anyway. Yeah. This can get us back on it. So in the like current system... We've got a money supply that's elastic and a credit system on top of that. Yeah. What happens when you go to a money system that is inelastic, but you can have some credit expansion on top of it? Yeah. Like, what does that change? Yeah. Well, so well I, hold on. Where is the credit expansion? Are you on about because the banks are issuing their own notes? Well, not even the banks. Like, you just you can never stop borrow, people borrowing. So that does expand. You, you have that's a credit. credit expansion. So think about it this way. Okay. You, can, you could lend gold directly. And that would be credit, right? Yeah. Or you can issue notes, and that would be credit. But you could only issue notes to the full amount of um, gold that you have in reserves. So if you're there, there if you're be, honest, if you're honest, yeah. So just like by way of example, if you were to take all the gold you had in reserves and directly lend it, versus you represented it with paper notes and then you lent that, that would be the same amount of credit issuance. Credit is money, but there's no credit expansion from the money. Um, 
But fiduciary media is a step beyond that. So it's like, okay, we took this gold, we're issuing notes on top of it, and now we've issued credit for that. Everybody is using our notes as money, so we can issue notes beyond that. Mm-hmm. And now we can print a bunch of new notes and just start issuing loans with notes directly without any gold. And like that's how it would emerge, is they get people to trust in the paper, and then they start issuing notes on top of that. And that system worked because most people would be keeping their gold within the system and not you know, drawing on it all the time. Um, and, and, you know, that's ultimately how the trust in that type of system would emerge. Um, so does that kind of like answer the question? I think so, but I... Uh, so there's credit that's being issued through the money itself once yeah. you have fiduciary media come up. And that's beyond the amount of just... Oh, sorry. Yeah, because you had another layer to that question. Well, I, I yeah. was kind of going to... Like, if I said to you, yep. um, I'll buy you a beer tonight. Yep. I can't figure this out. Yeah. This is something that I've been trying to figure out for so long. I've been speaking to Ben about it loads. Um, but like, it's the idea of me... It's like me lending you £10, yep. right? It's you can go out to the pub tonight and buy beer. Yep. And so that changes prices. And and I I paid you £10, but I didn't... I was never concerned about having that £10 in my bank because that's like part of my savings. And so you owe me £10 now, but it's increased that money supply because you've spent it. Yeah, I guess like, you know, you would have... a a certain amount of credit. Yeah. So like any, any sort of, um, any sort of credit that you could issue out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. That, that, that would make sense. But like, if you're doing it directly through the money supply, it's different because it's much easier to issue that credit. So like when you're talking about like just credit that could technically exist within the economy, mm-hmm. I guess like when I'm t- talking about structuring it through like a banking system where it emerges out of a banking system, then yeah, like I, your analogy, like if you just, you know, bought somebody a beer, um, or somebody gave you a beer and you're going to pay for it later or something, um, then, you know, theoretically, yeah. So, like, the way to think about it is, like, any sort of money that you would have to spend to, like, front somebody on credit, that's money that moves from somebody else, right? So, it'd be like, if you yeah, and I go yeah, to yeah. a bar, and the bartender is not going to sit there and say, I'll give you the beer. Um, he's going to say, like, somebody give me money. And I'll be like, all right, I'll cover you. Mm-hmm. So like any sort of lending, so like all, all of those reserves that are in the bank that are now being lent out as credit, those are all reserves that nobody's sitting around spending because they're in the bank. Yeah. So like that's why it's not monetary expansion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. Are you clear? Uh, no, but... That's fine. <laughs> Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Rivera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C 
B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is Big Casino. So they are now running a very cool competition where you can join me at the North London Derby, Arsenal v Tottenham, hopefully to see Arsenal absolutely spank Tottenham. Now they have created a Bitcoin box at the Emirates Stadium and they're going to be giving away two tickets to the match. It's on October the 1st and to find out how to enter, just check out their pinned tweet at twitter.com forward slash bitcasinoio. That is twitter.com forward slash B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O-I-O. Also, please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. But okay, one thing I'm going to say, I don't think we're ever going to have a full reserve system. To have a full reserve mm -hmm. banking system will only happen, I think, with regulation. Mm -hmm. And the kind of people who want... Uh, a free banking or, or more of a free market era mm. are the kind of people who are kind of anti-regulation. Yeah. Yeah. So I just don't think it happens. I think uh, a fractional reserve uh, free banking market will emerge mm -hmm. uh, from a from a Bitcoin uh, era where we have smaller state. I, th yep. I just, I think we're trying to consider a, a scenario that isn't possible. And actually, do you know what I think happens? It's quite interesting because I'm, I'm with Hal on this. I think I put it in, did I? It was in your paper. I think you referred to what Hal Finney said. But there is that other yep. issue that the Bitcoin denomination, there probably isn't enough Bitcoin that exists denominated available to have a fully functioning economy. So unless you get into microsats, I don't know how they work. Yeah, but, the, but that is also a potential issue. I just don't think it happens. I think what you will have is people will you'll have a free banking option where banks will hold Bitcoin and they'll issue their own e-cash, mm -hmm. Feddy Mint style. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we will have. And that will be based on reputation and risk. I just see that's the scenario we go to. I so here's what I think is the key limitation. Um and the question becomes Going back to the point earlier, so paper, you needed people to have trust in a note. You needed to, people needed to know like that note represents gold. 
before the system of fiduciary media could ever emerge on top of that. Before it was just a bunch of notes that represented full reserves. And then eventually it got to a point where like, everybody's trading our notes. They trust our notes. Our notes have now become money. We can issue a lot more of our notes and just issue loans directly from that. Now we're expanding fiduciary media within the economy. And once that once you kind of get to that level, the question is, is will Bitcoin be able to make that jump? Well, hold because on. Why, why were they able to issue those notes? Because people trusted that they were redeemable and they set up legal contracts for that. But in the Bitcoin world, we will have proof of reserves, which creates a new level of trust. So that'll be... that. <sighs> Proof of reserves is good, is better. The and and I, and I write a little bit like the the proof of reserves um, on the asset side is great. Yeah. The question is the liability side. Now, for like digitally native issued liabilities that we can measure, that's great. But that, there's going to be so many things that aren't that. Anything that's happening in the real world requires audits. And like that. Well, I I, I, th- I think over time trust. Mm-hmm. I think over time things build up trust and reputation. And I think yep. there's a combination of proof of reserves, reputation, totally. trust, yep. history. Yeah. Fucking fly. Do we need a fly break? You're not gonna get that. Oh. You nearly did. You need you need the chopsticks. I can't believe you're not seeing the fucking karate kid. <laughs> Honestly. Do you know do you know where you miss out? I've not seen the karate kid. The fly is literally right here. <laughs> you miss out on the kind of uh what's it called? Um Cobra Kai, which is the new version of the Karate Kick that's come out on YouTube, which is a, a YouTube series, uh, which is the Karate Kid 20 years later, but with the same characters, and it's fucking hilarious. It's genuinely brilliant. It's the premise sounds shit. I haven't seen anyone seen the original Karate Kid. It doesn't get, oh, fuck you. It's basically, <laughs> do you know what it's like? It's like in 20 years when you're my age, they do like some Harry Potter shit, and you'll be like, oh my God, it's so cool. I mean, I've not even seen all the Harry Potters. <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Let me let, let, let me finish this point because this one's important. Like, I think that the key limitation on whether or not we will see a free banking system emerge is whether or not there's ultimately demand from borrowers to want to use something other than directly Bitcoin. Because mm-hmm. if they want to use directly Bitcoin, then you're never going to get any sort of note that people trust that they can ultimately start issuing beyond the amount of reserves that they have. That'll be a key limitation because a lot of people say like, well, you're giving me money. We can send it instantly over the Lightning Network. There's no need for you to create a note. I'm just going to accept that loan. And then that'll just completely restrain the system from ever getting to the point of like, we have these notes, we trust the notes, we can expand these beyond a certain amount. Yeah. So like that's going to be a huge point of contention. And, you know, I was talking to like Farrington a little bit about this, but, I, you know, one point that um, I think could be a way that ultimately emerges is like, well, why do banks want that kind of a system? And it's because in the current system, they the reserves for the money that they issue, if it's like full reserve when they're lending, are a lot more expensive to them, right? Because they're going to have to pay depositors a certain rate on that. When they're issuing new money, when they're issuing fiduciary media, that is all coming at like nearly zero cost to them. And they can pass on a lot of that to depositors. And that'll be one reason that they would want to be issuing some form of fiduciary media is say like, okay, we can pay higher interest rates. We can gain market share. We can attract more capital from our depositors. So like, that'll be one big piece for why they would want it. So the question becomes, well, why would borrowers want to ultimately accept those? Because they need to have the other end of it too. If they're going to pay the interest to the other people, well, they've got to have the borrowers come in who are going to accept something other than directly Bitcoin on Lightning. So like, if those guys are going to come in, 
I think one way they do that, and they, it would probably be some through, sort of like programs where they'd say like, okay, we're going to issue some sort of like, here, here, here's a loan we'd give you in Bitcoin, and we're going to have all these terms associated with it. We'll give you better terms if you take our note. And they're going to attract borrowers to get cheaper money because it's no cost to them. They can immediately just hit their bottom line with all of this and gain market share. So they're probably going to start creating programs to attract depositors where they effectively are passing along the benefits of their newly issued money a little bit to their depositors through better terms as well. Um, I would. That's probably one way I could see an exception emerging to this. But I'll, I, I think a lot of people who are kind of on like the full reserve camp within the Bitcoin world, they're going to say, well, you don't need notes. Bitcoin can do payments on Lightning. If that system matures, then you wouldn't need to issue notes. We wouldn't have a fiduciary media system ever emerge. So like that's one of the key markets for or, um, arguments for like why you wouldn't see a free banking. But to the point I just made, I think that there's probably, if you really start to think it through, there's there's a lot of other ways I think it could probably come out. Um, And then going back to proof of reserves, that's something that is also complicated. It definitely increases the information transparency. And I think that that has a lot of major implications for how we'd see banking build out. Because when we have information transparency, that would create a much more competitive environment for free banking, which is great. And also, it would enable private insurance markets much better. Because right now, so much of our banking system is fucked up by all the perverse incentives of the FDIC. The FDIC is unfucking believable. It's, 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 I can't even believe it exists. So, yeah. I mean, look, we have protection in the UK. Your assets are protected in a bank account up to eighty-five thousand pounds. Is that correct, I think Danny? Like that, yeah. So that came out of what happened in two thousand eight. So yep. up to eighty-five thousand. Beyond that, you're fucked. Yeah. Okay? But you're protected up to eighty-five thousand. Yep. The problem you've got with the FDIC in the US, I think, is up to two hundred and fifty thousand yep. dollars. But the the most fucked up thing about that is is that it basically gave banks free reign to go and make irresponsible mortgage offers because they knew they'd get the money back from yep. the FDIC. It's fucking ridiculous. Right. It's it's a perverse incentive to um, insure somebody who has a conflict of interest with the risk that they're taking on. That's number one. And then the other fucked up thing is too is the, the mechanism that they use is like flat rates for all the banks. So like it incentivizes, it benefits the riskier banks at the cost yes. of the poorer banks. Yeah. It, or um, the, the conservative banks. And that's the most fucked up part about it. So like we have this public insurance market that's creating all these perverse incentives within the system that you're already dealing with, which is that this is a perfect example of all these arguments. Like when people are like free banking didn't work in like, you know, the US, for example, the US was not great. There were some areas that were okay. But it was heavily regulated. It wasn't free banking. There was like bond collateral laws that they had to keep in their reserves and shit like that. It was not a free banking system. It abided by a lot of characteristics of free banking, but there was heavy, heavy regulation around it. So like when you think about these ways that the government interferes in our banking system and how it creates these bad incentives, that's what's caused a lot of these issues to happen. And bring this back to like proof of reserves. Because it'll be so much more transparent within these systems, it's going to create much more transparent markets that private insurance providers can emerge and use for risk analysis, which well, I think will be really important. Well, the market figures it out. Right. I mean, for me, the FDIC was it's essentially a sticking plaster over the consequences of, was it Glass-Steagall that was repealed mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. Uh, Clinton? Yeah. Yeah. So... They wanted to deregulate the markets. Mm. Clinton wanted, I mean, it probably goes back for that. Clinton wanted more people to have access to home loans because you used to have to like have a 20% deposit, right? Mm. And I was like, well, that, you know, not enough people have a 20% deposit. Let's get rid of uh, Glass-Steagall. But but that had that consequence of lending to money to people who couldn't afford mortgages. And so the FDIC, 
uh, insurance program was a sticking plaster. Right. Am I correct? I've got uh, that wrong. I'm not like an expert on all of it, but I would I, I'd say that that's a fair argument. I, I, yeah. Sometimes I mix up Glass Steagall and Dodd Frank. I think Dodd Frank is what came after. Oh wait, yeah. Oh wait, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure it's Glass Steagall. Yeah, yeah, it's Glass Steagall. Yeah. yeah. Which, in fairness to Elizabeth Warren, is one of the things she got right. Her analysis of that. Oh, interesting. I haven't yeah. heard it. You should see her a grill Mnuchin on mm-hmm. his yeah before he became tre- was he Treasury Secretary? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should see her grill him on. And especially when she was talking about the repeating of uh, Glass Steagall, um, she was good. And I, I, I'm hesitant to compliment Elizabeth Warren. She's the worst man. I can't. I can't stand her. I mean, yeah. I think she's just like the epitome of sociopath politician. Actually, I think I think it's more simple than that. I think she's the epitome of somebody who has her opinions formed by uh, uh, backroom staff. They yeah. give her things to think. Think right. this, say that, that'll get you votes. She just she goes by the book. Yeah. She, she follows the, the statistics. I don't yeah. think she's a sociopath. I think she's just yeah, an, that's a fair point. I think she's just an an idiot, a politician yeah. who doesn't know the to- topic she's discussing. Right. Uh that that's my issue with her. I think there are mm-hmm. genuine sociopaths within all eras of politics. Who, who's the number one? Number one sociopath. Oh God. I'll g- hmm. I'll just get flamed so hard for saying this, but I th- I think it's <sighs> It's pretty clearly Donald Trump. Ooh, yeah. I and there's things about him I think are good. I think yeah. he did some good things. I don't think he's the worst politician ever. Yeah. But I just think it's very clear that his whole agenda is about him. And I think that became very clear when his was it Senate testimony hearings, hearings regarding the January sixth, uh, which by the way I don't think was. Um, Everything people said it was, but yeah. but 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 at the same time, like his staff are telling him, "Yeah, you lost this election," and he still won't yeah. accept it. And he still like his ego won't accept certain things. Here's the deal, but I but the things I liked about Trump. Yeah, so here's here's what I think about it. I think if he was the biggest sociopath, he wouldn't be a very good sociopath. I think he's, you know, obviously highly egotistical, and like you can see, like just like very successful people, it's. I think it's more he determined a very long time ago that acting that way works. And if you act that way, it works. And I think that he just continually does that. And if you just like don't accept, you know, failure, and you keep pushing and you just never give in, you know, obviously that's appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, but you can say that or he's acted that whole way because that's who he is. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, like yeah. who 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 knows? Yeah. I, I think the majority of politicians are sociopaths. So anyone who's about to flame me, I think I, majority, I completely agree. I think the majority, but I think the best sociopath is going to be the person that nobody thinks is. That that's would be a, like that's a cool. if it's a, it would be like Obama. You know, he, he's sitting in his what how hundred million dollar mansion. Yeah, no, now. I, I, I like, think I think I think Obama is a sociopath. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, he's out there uh, showing like showing tears after another school right. shooting and he's still dropping bombs on brown people in the Middle East right? Uh, and killing innocent people. Exactly. Uh, yeah. He's expanding the state. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm out of my depth here, but if you search it up here, you know, some of the uh, uh, encroachment on privacy and the expansion of surveillance, he's a fucking, he's a sociopath as well. Right, 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 you right. You know, I'm t- uh, we have it on our side. Tony Blair is an absolute sociopath. Yeah. He should be in the. I've said it a million times. He should be in the Hague. Try, try for war crimes. He, he supported a legal war in Iraq that led to the deaths of millions of people. And now he's out there preaching to the public, charging I don't know whatever he charges two hundred fifty grand, two hundred fifty grand to speech. go and talk to people. The guys are, 
My brother tells me off using this word, and sometimes he makes me cut it out, but Tony... Sorry, Neil. Tony Blair's a cunt. <laughs> like, a, just a cunt. Yeah. He sent... He, like, he is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people for sending us into an illegal war, which the public made very fucking clear we don't want to go into. Mm. I think my brother even marched against that. We're the biggest march in the history of the UK against this war, and he sent us there. We had politicians resign, step down. Claire Short uh, stepped down. Like, there were a couple of others. Like... Everyone knew this war was bullshit, and he yeah. sent us into it. He's like, "What's the other? What's the other argument? We know it was based on mm. lies. He's a fucking psychopath." Yeah, fuck these people. Have you <laughs> seen, have you seen Legends of the Fall? A long time ago. Is that Brad Pitt? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. I've been on this Brad Pitt tear recently, and oh, okay. I've never seen that. And that is a great movie. And what I loved is, you know, it's like these three sons and one of the sons becomes like this congressman and he like comes to his dad and he's just like, dad, I'm running for Congress. Like, you know, he's always trying to make his dad proud the whole movie. And his dad just like immediately disowns him the second he says he's running for Congress. And then like the movie's quite a bit about that. Just like That's how a, fucked up I'm going to have to go back. I mean, I probably saw that 20 years ago. Great one. All right. If you're on a Brad Pitt tear, what's your favorite? Because I'm a huge Brad Pitt Ooh, fan. Ooh, okay. Favorite Brad Pitt movie. Favorite? Fuck, that's a tough Oh, um, Easy for me. Oh, dude, that's easy. Um, um, I think I know what you're going to say. Fight Club. Yeah. I was about to write down Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, it's not for me. Mine's seven. Oh, I, I, it's funny. I saw Seven for the first time a month ago. Oh, really? Fight, Fight Club is best. I think Snatch is my favorite, yeah. though. Oh, dude, that's a... Ooh, actually, I might... <laughs> you I might... He, his role, the... Uh, what is it? The, the Gypsy. The Gypsy, yeah. yeah. But yeah. What, what do they call him? The Hurt... Uh, Pikey. Pikey's, yeah. Pikey's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a dog. <laughs> that, that, I don't know. That's probably my favorite Brad Pitt. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, uh, the Oscar committee, whatever they're called... Uh, they historically reward people too late sometimes. So they gave him an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is Not one like of it. Quentin's most average films. I agree with that completely. And an yeah. okay performance from Brad Pitt. Yeah. His best performance was Snatch. He should have got an Oscar for that. It was unbelievable. That's such a good point. That's a great point. But they did, yeah. they did the same with Leonardo. Mm -hmm. They did the same with... Um, who's the director? The Italian director... Uh, made Goodfellas. Oh. <laughs> it's not a couple of that, is it? Scorsese. No. Scorsese. Yeah. Oh, God, Scorsese. Uh, so they gave Scorsese his first... Get up Scorsese on IMDb. <laughs> get, up, get up Scorsese on IMDb. This is an embarrassment of the... Um, of the uh, We've had oh, some real detours in this. Yeah, it's because we're drinking. That's the problem. Yeah. Whoops. I'm going to have so many complaints on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay. Let's go and look at the films he's made. This is where I remember all of them, Goodfellas and everything. Okay, go scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Okay, Just keep going, keep going. Oh, no, you've got to get him for his director. Yeah, director, 69 credits. Let's, uh, let's okay, some of these films I, I don't think you'll have seen. Mean Streets, I think that was his first great film. Taxi Driver, you've probably not seen that. Robert De Niro. No, I've um, seen, yeah. Unbelievable yeah. film. Uh, Raging Bull, have you seen that? No. That's De Niro as well, boxing film. You've got to go and okay. see that. If your dad was doing his job, you would have seen that. Both of you. <laughs> Goodfellas, you've seen that? Obviously. Yeah, yeah unbelievable film. Cape, uh, Cape Fear, have you seen that? I actually have not seen Cape Fear. Again, Fairy, De Niro, yeah. absolutely brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Casino, which, by the way, controversially, yeah. I think is better than Goodfellas. That is I, That's a great point. I completely agree with but that. No, it's just a yeah. better film. Goodfellas is great, but uh, uh, Casino is great. Yeah. Okay. He still doesn't have an Oscar at this moment in time. So, so all those great films we've said, he still doesn't have a, an Oscar at the moment. Okay, and then he makes Gangs of, Gangs of New York, which is, again, an unbelievable film. Yeah. Makes The Aviator. Pretty good film. We get to The Departed. That was a great film. 
boom, he gets an Oscar. But that is not an Oscar movie. Yeah, that man. is not best direct. And it's Who's a great good, film. Go up, go up to his, uh, go up all the way to the top because it will show you the Oscars he's got. All right, okay. Only... Keep going. Awards. Where is it? Awards. One, one Oscar. He made all those films. He got one Oscar. By the time he made The Departed, they're like, holy shit, we should probably give him an Oscar. <laughs> this is the embarrassment. Nominee, Rage and Ball. Nominee, oh yeah, and Last Temptation of Christ. Nominee, okay. Nominee for Goodfellas. <laughs> nominee for Gags in New York. <laughs> nominee for The Aviator. By the way, The Aviator's shit. Nominee. Ooh, interesting. And then he finally, they finally give him one for um, The Departed. So let's be, let's just be completely honest. He should have got it for Raging Ball. He definitely should have got it for Goodfellas. And he absolutely should have got it for Casino. The Academy should absolutely be fucking embarrassed by this, but they keep doing that. And then they, they nominate him for The Irishman, which is... You know, the Irishman, oh my God. That should have been a four-part series on Netflix and we yeah. all would have loved it. But that's what they did with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, maybe Brad Pitt's one of those people that's hard to give an Oscar to because he's just so goddamn good looking. And you're like, we don't want to give it to that guy. But he was unbelievable in Snatch, unbelievable in Seven, yeah. and they give it to him for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think it was just like, a, oh shit, we should have given you one by right, now. Right, right, right. I, I think like a lot of it probably comes down to like the bias of, um, you know, the genres that they're looking at too. Like you see that a lot on like the Rotten Tomato ratings when like yeah. X movie comes out and it's like 100% audience score and then like, Twelve percent from the tomato critics. It's like probably that. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, Danny asked a question the other day interestingly he said to us we were out there having a beer and he was like because we were trying to pick a film to watch and he was like if you could watch one film right now for the first time again what would it be Ooh, and i picked question. i actually picked seven nice nice okay i can't remember what i picked i think we got to you mm. i would back to the future <laughs> i do godfather too I have so much respect for you right now for saying that. Yeah. Oh, really? Because you've gone into that field of sequels that are better than originals. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. And I think there yeah. are three. Ooh. Okay. Can you name the three? You probably wouldn't have seen them. The three sequels. I think we've spoken about this before, though. So I think I know at least what are, one of them. What are I the, think Aliens is one of them. Yeah, Aliens Ooh. is better than Alien. Have you seen Aliens and Alien? Um, not in so long. I so, saw when I was younger. But. Aliens is better than Alien. There's one more, but. Terminator 2 is better than Terminator. Mm. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen both of those? Yeah. Okay, so you've seen Terminator, but you haven't seen Back to the Future and the Karate Kid. Well, yeah, I, I grew up in an Arnold Schwarzenegger household. Like, <laughs> my okay. dad was like, my, you know, I'd get like some ice cream, my dad would get a rum and coke, and we just watch like shoot em up movies. That sounds like my relationship with me and my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's badass. I get some ice cream, she gets some rum and coke. <laughs> and it was funny because I wasn't allowed to watch movies when I was like, you know, nine or 12 or whatever when I, they had sex in them. But like any amount of gore, we were watching it. Okay, let's see how good a father your dad is. Have you seen, <laughs> did, did you watch Die Hard? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did sure. that. Yeah. Okay, fine. That's, uh, getting, have you seen Die Hard? Yeah. Phew, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was getting worried then. Can you go? I'm sorry if anyone listening, we're on a detour, but it's Friday and we're drinking. We don't give a fuck. Can you get up Brad Pitt? Let's see. Like, he's made a lot of good films. Yeah, he's got to be, he's definitely one of the most versatile actors. He's just consistently brilliant. Uh, what are we, are we an actor that's good actor credits? I think his first big one was like Thelma and Louise, right? No, never heard of this shit. He had like that bit part of Thelma and Louise. Freddy's Nightmares, it was that. Yeah, Thelma and Louise was like the first time like recognized. He was on Marty's podcast. 
Uh, River Runs Through It. I think that was his first big role. True Romance, he mm. played the stone. Did you see that? He plays the stoner. Have you watched that yet? No, I just saw River Runs Through It. Okay, you see True Romance, he plays a stoner. He's he's brilliant. And, okay. Stoner Brad Pitt. Legends of the... Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah. Interview with the Vampire alongside Tom Cruise. And then Seven. I think Seven was his first big hit. Twelve Mon- You've seen 12 Monkeys yet? No, I haven't seen yeah, that. Yeah, so that's great. Have you seen Meet Joe Black? Yeah, of course. Love it's that. a yeah, but the, yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's, it's a rom com a bit. Yeah, but hold on. If you turn around, to, have you seen? I think I have seen that. Because yeah. if you turn around to another dude and say, "Have you seen Meet Joe Black?" and, and they're like, "No, like, what's about?" You go, "Well, it's brilliant. It's, it's a love it's, story. It's a basically, it's about a guy, a love story where death uh, <laughs> comes to see what Earth is like. He gets taken around and he falls in love with somebody, and they'll be like." <laughs> the fuck you want about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's brilliant. It's a brilliant I, film. I, I love... Okay, so my favorite actor is Anthony Hopkins. And I love Anthony go. Hopkins in that movie. My fa- Who's your favorite actor? Uh, maybe I go for Leo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You, you, you sound embarrassed. That's a safe, I am a bit that's embarrassed a safe bet. That. No, yeah, it's yeah. a safe bet. A safe and I can't bet. think of anyone else. But I mean, I like his movies. I'm a Sean Penn maximalist. A Sean Penn maximalist. <laughs> yeah, Sean Penn maximalist. <laughs> Not sure about that. Uh, there you go. This is where he went absolutely brilliant. So, Fight Club Snatch. <laughs> like, uh, the notion. So, I think he's a great actor. I, I absolutely love him. And oh, I, he's you know, awesome. I, I would, if somebody said their favorite actor was Brad Pitt, I would like Fair Play. He's yeah, easy. Brilliant. That's an easy yeah. one. Uh, the Assassination of Jesse James by the Car of Robert Ford. That's definitely worth watching. Burn after reading is a bit weird. I, I could, yeah, we we have similar opinion. I keep yeah. agreeing with you about shit, and it's well, getting weird. I yeah. I, don't, I prefer Coen Brothers films where they're not making comedies. I prefer their serious films. Right. So I didn't could, yep. didn't they make um oh shit what's the one where the guys like with the fifty p hey friendo don't know yeah you do um, no country for old men that's Coen oh, Brothers oh yeah 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 I prefer when they're doing that rather than burn yep. after reading Fury. Do you see World? I thought Fury was bad. What? Yeah, I didn't like that movie. I haven't yeah. seen it. That's a World War II film. Right? Yeah, yeah, with the no. tanks. He's wrong. Watch it. <coughs> Fury? Yeah. Danny's Did wrong you guys see World War Z? Uh, yeah. So I thought it was good. A lot of people don't. Good. So yeah. have you read the book? No. So I have. Well, well so most people, have, most people read the book say, well, it's not as good as the book. Right. I mean, there's, there's well, they all say that about everything. Yeah, but, but I liked World War Z. Yeah. I thought that was a cool film. The, the airplane scene? Yeah, a bit ridiculous. Uh-huh. But I loved Ad Astra. I love loved Ad Astra. Great. I, I've seen that a few times. You, I mean, honestly, you could make a shit movie, but if you make it sci-fi, I'm still gonna watch. Yeah, it. yeah. I, <laughs> so I, I'm, I watch nearly every sci-fi film. Same. I, I've uh, have Have you seen Event Horizon? No. <gasps> we found another Jeremy. I've watched it now. What did you think? That it was probably the most fucked up movie I've seen. Yeah. Apart oh, from okay. maybe what's the movie that's really fucked up? A Requiem for a Dream. Maybe oh, that's, maybe that's they're more fucked up than Oh, yeah, yeah. But they're both pretty fucked did up. Did you struggle to sleep and go to bed after Event Horizon? No, it wasn't that bad. Uh, did you, without giving it away to Eric, did you pause the bits to see what was going on in the bits where it was... I actually didn't, because I think I was watching it in bed. But uh, Have you ever paused those bits, Jeremy? I paused it in Fight Club. That's got a few bits where you like stuff flash up on the screen. Yeah, so I paused the bits in Event Horizon. People who've watched it know what I mean. You, Event Horizon is a sci-fi horror. Sick. It's fucked up, man. Yeah. Dude, it's fucked. Do you like horror? Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite horror? Oh. Ooh. Um, I got to go with... I, you know, it, it depends on how you define favorite. There's like scariest, and then there's like the horror that I love the most. I've got an original Exorcist t-shirt. 
Okay. Like, yeah. I mean, a great film. It's not that scary. Not that kind scary. Of, it's kind of ridiculous now. Yeah, but it's just, I don't know. I, I love That's it. Mark Hermo's favorite film of all time. Who the fuck's Mark Hermo? Does the Radio 5 film reviews. Ah, okay. You know the guy. It's probably more guy. a cultural thing at this point, just because like, you know, me and my friends would like quote it all the time growing right. up. But have you seen The Exorcist? I don't think so. Dude. It's understandable. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a big horror guy either. No, actually, Dan, Dan's scared of horror. <laughs> yeah, what's the fucking point? Look at him. He's, he's six foot four. <laughs> Hard as now, and he's scared. He's like, I can't watch him. I get scared. It's true. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. Okay, so I've got two horror films I'm going to bring up. Mm. Uh, my favorite of all time, I just very always have to go Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think is an absolute classic. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Have you seen them all? No. There's lots of them. I saw them like I was so young when I saw them. But my favorite recent one, which I think, I think horror has been shit for a long time because they go formula. So two boys, right, two girls, right, and they're right, hanging out and they're right, partying, right. and then one, it's like shit. I think the one that broke the mold recently, there's been a few, mm-hmm. was It Follows. I haven't seen it. <sighs> it Follows. I've seen It Follows. Danny, get the trade up. Did we watch it? Uh, I recognize the name, but I don't think so. I must have watched this film 15 times with people. They've not seen it. I said, I'll watch oh, it. Oh, no them. shit. Yeah, and I'll sit there. We'll put it on now. Are we putting on the trailer? Yeah, put on the trailer of it. On the podcast. I don't give a fuck anymore. Anyone who's, anyone who's pissed off is left by now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get onto wealth inequality soon, so stick around. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll get, yeah. No, they, they'll have left. They'll be on YouTube. They'll be on YouTube. They'll be on dates. I had this image of myself. Holding hands with a really cute guy. Driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. Is this the perspective of a teen? I think he's shown me this trailer before. Okay. You awake? Just don't really get why you'd watch this movie. You're not gonna believe me. And I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's gonna follow you. This thing. And I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. That doesn't look that scary. Did it really do to you? Apparently, he used a fake name to rent a house in the city. This isn't real. I swear to you, this is just some game. Her, it gets me. Goes I'm pretty sure Pete is going to try and make his jump somehow. What exactly is supposed to be following you? I don't know. Something happened. That's not what she thinks, okay? I don't believe it. It looks like it's probably very plot oriented. Mom? I'd say that would be one positive no, of it. It's me. Because that's a differentiator for all okay. these horror movies. Well, what do you mean? Like, so many of them, like, to his point earlier, like, they, they all just follow, like, the, there's no focus on the plot. It's just like, let's bust out the whole script, let's get some gore in there, let's, you know, yeah, show yeah. some nudity, and let's just, like, keep churning that out. But whenever you get a horror movie with, like, a legitimately solid plot and, like, good actors, that's, that's what I get on board for. Yeah, I'm not a horror movie guy. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. What do you say? Like, you've been horizon. Which yeah. Is based on Solaris. Are you familiar with Solaris? Did you like sci-fi? Oh, dude, I feel like I don't know shit about sci-fi now because I don't think I've even seen Solaris. Okay. What? 
Dude, I've been through like a lot of lists and like tried to watch all the sci-fi movies. And I haven't heard of either of those two. So that It Follows is fucking brilliant. Yeah? Yeah, it's just a completely different horror movie. It's just like a good plot. Yeah, it's just interesting. It's just mm. something that's done different. Sorry, I'm out of breath for now upstairs, downstairs. I finally got a mattress. Nice. <laughs> Need a bed now. Um, so you haven't seen Solaris. I'm trying to think what other... Oh, God, I'm out of breath. Mm. Saw The Martian. Oh, of course. Have you read Hail Mary? Read. Well, audiobooked. Oh, no. I've never... I don't read think I've book. ever read... I, I rarely... Well, so, like, growing up, um, I didn't read at all. I was a very poor student when I... And you wrote a book. That's the irony of it. It's really fun. <laughs> wrote one before you'd read one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't read books anymore, but I do the audiobooks. And uh-huh. we were recommended Hail Mary. I think Adam Wright recommended it. Was it Adam Wright? Maybe. Or is it Craig Warmke? Mm, yeah, maybe. I think it was yeah, Adam. I think it was Graham Warmke. Okay. Uh, it's by the guy who wrote The Martian. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, and it's, uh, we've all just, have you finished it yet, Jeremy? No. Hurry up, dude. It's brilliant. <laughs> what was your take on Dune? Uh, looked beautiful. Yeah, um, looked beautiful. I think their biggest mistake, they've, they're trying to make two films, two parts. It should have been one film. Uh-huh. They could have cut so much shit out of it. Uh-huh. By the way, that Rebecca Ferguson, who's in it. Maybe Which one was she? The mother. Oh, okay. You know when yeah. like everyone yeah, yeah. says, if I could have a list of five people, like, you know, in a relationship, there's one famous person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's mine. No shit. I think, really? honestly, I think she's I didn't, I'm going to be honest with you, Pete. She didn't even strike me as hot. Yeah, but I'm older than you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you probably like She's got her. that seasoned look. She's got that. You probably like her daughter or something. <laughs> Older. I think she's got. Give Rebecca Ferguson up. Come on, I'm not having this. Okay, yeah, let's see, let's see. Because I, I mean, because in the movie, I mean, I don't know if I've seen her before. But, oh, you got to pick. Okay, yeah, no, right she, she's gorgeous. Yeah, that, that one. She didn't really look like that in the movie. Middle left. There's something going on with your like texture. Middle left. This one? Like, yeah, that yeah. one. That one's. Come on. Yeah, no, she she's really attractive. That's my kind of. Okay, cool, 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 cool. If you're listening, Rebecca, <laughs> come to Bedford. <laughs> uh, so June was a disappointment. I like the actor, that young lad. I think he's brilliant in everything. I think he's great. Yeah, he's good at playing. I think he has that that type of a role. I'd be no, actually, that's not true. He I haven't was, seen him bad. He was in. Never mind. Yeah, I take it because I was going to say he's like really good at that serious role, and he's doing that a lot. But it was uh, what the hell was that movie? Um, oh, I can't even remember. It was some random thing I was watching. Was it the um, coming of age one with the girl and her mum? That's other. exactly what it is. He's um, kind of like a fuckboy in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, she, he's good um, at that. It's, it's not, I'm going to say Junebug, but it's not Junebug. That's the film uh-huh. with Amy Adams. It's to do with uh, Ladybird. Was it? Yeah, what, yeah, you're right. It was Ladybird. Yeah, or, or was it Ladybug? No, Ladybird. No, Ladybird. Ladybird, yeah. Ladybird, yeah. yeah it's Ladybird. Yeah, have, have you seen that? He's good in that. It's a good film. That's what I'm saying. It's a good company. Yeah, he's great in that. And he's like, he's a bit of a douche in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he's my yeah. son's favorite actor. Cool. Uh, I think he's great in everything. But the, my problem with that film is it's two parts, right? Mm-hmm. And once I got to the end, I was like, huh, no, I get it. You've mm-hmm. basically stretched out a movie into two movies to monetize it. Right. But it was just too long. Like, not enough happened. Yeah. What do you think, Jeremy? Can you come and say it on the mic so we hear you properly? Because I know you're a sci-fi fan. I loved it. I thought it was a perfect movie, and I can't wait for the next one. And You're, a that, You're a dick. You're a dick. You're never allowed the mic. <laughs> okay, my Jer- Jeremy's not allowed the mic. I, 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 because the cinematography was so great, it was beautiful. I didn't really, I, I, like, if it's just like a scene of them flying around, it's just like boom going on, you know, and like, I don't give a shit if they're stretching it out with that. Like, that's like, that's like almost like meditation. It's just kind of like whoa. Yeah, it looks beautiful. But it's, like Jason Malmoa, 
he was kind of just this wrench or is that how you say his last name? Mamo or yeah, yeah, yeah. Malmo. I know the guy. Yeah. He was just like a wrench thrown into the acting. They had a bunch of great actors and then it's like he walks into the room and like says a bunch of awkward shit. And I was kind of like, all right, get, get this guy out of here. <laughs> but it did look beautiful. And that's why it gets, and yeah. some films can do that. But I didn't think the Blade Runner 2049, that also looked beautiful, but was dull as shit. I didn't work. See, I, okay. So this is where we differ because I love that shit. Yeah. Okay. So me, that's me and Jeremy. We're, we're going to have movie night, dude. Pete's not <laughs> Well, <laughs> watch me Joe Black. Yeah, okay, let's watch. Yeah, let's do. Let's let's split a glass of rose and do me Joe Black. You're not doing it. My, you're not doing it. In my house. Go back to Denver and watch your fucking nuggets. Um, but I'm like that with Robert De Niro, right? A Robert De Niro film can be shit, but I can enjoy it because I like watching De Niro or Sean Penn. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah, watch yeah. a Sean Penn film. Yeah. Uh, you got to go down the Sean Penn rabbit hole. I do. I haven't gone down that. You got to go see the game. Danny hasn't seen the game. That's one we've been talking about. Okay. We can we can all have a film night. Let's do it. Let's do a movie. Yeah. Let's do a movie night. Yeah. I've where the fuck are we? How, how long are we in? We've done like two hours. We've done about an hour of movies. <laughs> yeah. Anyone listening who's enjoyed this, thank you very much. Anyone who's complaining <laughs> on YouTube, please don't, because I don't care. <laughs> uh, what are we gonna talk about? Wealth inequality. Yes. Oh yeah. That's well, what I want to get into. Because we get tons of emails all the time. And like one of the big things is like in a hyper Bitcoinized world, what's the distribution of Bitcoin like? Yeah. And I think that'd be an interesting thing to get into. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, there's there's a bunch of points around it, and like in the paper, I touch on credit. But I'll start. Let's start with like you know base layer of Bitcoin. I'll caveat with this with I don't know, um, but what I expect is, you know, with all emerging economic systems, you know, whether it's a country, whether it's like a new industry or something, you always see this increasing amount of like you know inequality that exists in some form, and then ultimately that levels off. Um, and it's just like it's um, this you know inverted U curve of uh, like the Gini coefficient, which is like a measure of wealth inequality. And um, you know, so like when you, whenever you see that occurring, like. Bitcoin's going to have a high degree of wealth inequality. There's going to be a lot of people that get very rich off of this. And um, and that's the point of a lot of us coming here early is like a lot of people want to take advantage of that. They want to invest in that. They want to support something when it's, you know, a very low probability that it ultimately gets there. They understand the information more in depth. They get compensated for that in the long run because they took on a lot of risk and they literally put a ton of their wealth into this thing very early on for, you know, multiple decades. Like that'll be how that works and they're going to be compensated. Sure. But it doesn't mean you know, play to them. Right, right, right. And like, that's the nature of any form of investing. Right. It, it, and that's why like when people are like Bitcoin is savings and all of that, I'm kind of like, well, it, it's designed to be savings in the long run, but it's, it's people invest in it as a risk investment, you know, and, and it's going to be that for a significant amount of time. But, um, but anyways, like that tapers off because you can't eat Bitcoin and you can't live in it. So like eventually people are going to spend this and, um, and, you know, that's going to cause that wealth inequality to go down. If Bitcoin was something that had actual like utility or something, that's something that would cause, you know, structural possession of it over time. If it had, or sorry, um, non-monetary utility. Um, which is funny because I think I made that mistake when we were on our last podcast yeah. too. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so non-monetary utility. You can't really have non-monetary utility because... You can't do anything else with it. You can't, and it exists in cyberspace. You could make arguments for like really nuanced things, right? And that would be more like, uh, you know, colored coins, like the original NFT concept or something that would be like, I don't know, you could kind of argue that that's still monetary or something, maybe like a subcategory. But it has financial utility. Right. Um, 
and and more complicated yeah. and useful financial utility than gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I mean, I, I still kind of consider that to be like under the veil of like monetary utility. Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, like the um, uh, so yeah, there's there, there's nothing you can't use it in electronics. You can't do anything else with it. So like because of that, which is a huge advantage of it, and a lot of issues that like you know were criticisms of like free banking, for example, were due to the fact that gold had economic shocks associated with it. Um, and that was because of a lot of its non-monetary functions. So, like, if we had some sort of major, you know, issue in the market of gold because, um, you know, whatever happened, like there's this huge demand or supply shock that's related to something for non-monetary, that complicates the monetary situation. So the fact that Bitcoin is pure within that dimension um, is really valuable to making it a reserve asset as well. But anyways, like getting back to the point of wealth inequality, um, it... Uh, so I expect that to be like an inverted U. We're probably going to see it follow a similar pattern to everything that's going to be over time. Some people are going to make an immense amount of money. Some people are going to hold out to the bitter end. Um, and you know, and that's just how any economic system ultimately emerges. That's something that's pretty unavoidable. Um, you know, we'd like everybody to be rich, and but you know, it's just not how it works. And with then the question becomes like, okay, so what I write about in the writing is like, what about the Cantillion effect? Mm -hmm. And how would that work under like a full reserve system versus like a free banking system? And this is one of the key things. Oh yeah, let's pour another one. Um, this is one of the key things that I think people probably are overlooking on like the free banking side. Do you want a whiskey, Danny? I can have a beer. Okay. Yeah. Um, You'll drink a whiskey when you become a man. Yeah, one day. <laughs> so on the... On the uh, credit extension side, if you have a full reserve, then it's like, okay, we don't have to worry about the Cantillon effect. There's no centralized issuance of, you know, any form of credit money or whatever it is. And because of that, you know, the money is being distributed how it nor normally be distributed. No wealth inequality emerges due to monetary phenomenon. It would just be the way it is. That's a similar concept to like, if hypothetically we could use Bitcoin, you know, on chain or whatever, just Bitcoin lightning payments and no other, you know, credit system emerges or something. It's just lightning. And that's the only system that emerges. We'll have some sort of wealth inequality, but it's not going to be like the Cantillon effect from centralized issuance and some yeah. people having an advantage over that. Um, now with free banking, this is where I, I'd say it's a little bit trickier of an argument, but I think it's uh, where it ultimately comes out to, and it's based on assumptions of the theory, right? So like if these assumptions aren't true, then this wouldn't be true, but assuming they are, then with free banking, if we have, just with any emergence of the system, you have an initial credit expansion. So you have a certain amount, you've got 21 million Bitcoin in the world, free banking system emerges on top of it, and then it ultimately finds a market. So it'll be like, we have credit that's expanding and it's increasing, and then eventually it'll be, here's the amount of reserves, the percentage of total money that exists um, in Bitcoin. So that 21 million will represent, say, 21% of the total um, you know, amount of money that exists. Mm -hmm. And the rest is going to be like uh, fiduciary media, you yeah. know, credit money. And and once it kind of hits that market, and that's determined by a market, right? There's, there's all these competing forces that exist that'll be constantly like testing it. So when we have, um, you know, a, a good example of this was like when we had free banking systems emerge, you have all these banks come out. This, this segues back to our conversation from two hours ago. Yeah. So like when we have these systems emerge and we have all these banks and it's like, okay, well, you know, why, what prevents this credit from continuing to expand? Why don't they just keep pushing it? Why does it have to be 21% of reserves or whatever the market finds? Why doesn't it just keep going? And it's because there's natural limits to that credit expansion 
institutions. So there's, um, in, you know, like the free banking theory, um, there's, uh, the concept is that basically like when we hit that natural level, there's all these different, uh, market forces that emerge. Like a big thing that emerges is what we saw in like the old free banking systems. You have a broker class emerge. So like this was relevant more to the older systems because you'd have like one bank in a locale, everybody knows them. Right. And that, you know, the digital analog today is like, here's that first, you know, note issuer on lightning or whoever it would be that everybody's familiar with. You know, it has a brand. It's like tether to somebody or, you know, maybe a better brand, USDC or whatever. Um, so you have like back in these old locales, they'd have these note issuers. Now, if somebody had their notes from here, they go travel to like a town over um, and we go up to York, for example, then we pr- try to present our Bedford notes and all the guys in York are just like, I've never seen this before. I'm not going to accept that. But you have a broker class. We will fight them. Yeah, we will. We will fight. We them. will fight. That we will go to war with those. Well, what's the town over that you're competing with in soccer again? Well, they're also Bedford. They're called they're Bedford Town. Oh, Bedford Town. Yeah. Okay, so we go. So like, you know, we're like, yo, you, you talk to your buddy at the Bedford Bank, and you're like, don't take Bedford Town notes. Fuck those guys. And, and like that actually happened in a lot of these systems. So like, well, so when you had like broker classes that emerged, and they were like, okay, we're going to arbitrage the differences. So like, where people aren't accepting notes, or like they're accepting them but at a discount, we're going to buy them in this town at a discount, take them over to that town, and then go redeem them at the bank and get the full value. So you have arbitrage people that are like, you know making the price be what it's worth. They're testing the redemptions and thing, and that forces these banks to maintain reserves because you have a broker class that's constantly testing their reserves. So that's one big thing. And then the banks eventually kind of like adopted that function themselves. So what it did is it encouraged wide acceptance of notes because if you were a bank and you started rejecting a lot of different banks' notes, that meant that you had you're rejecting all these notes that you could go redeem at other banks. So you go to other banks, get their reserves, bring your reserves up. And if you don't do that, then you have a bunch of people redeeming at you and your reserves go down. Mm-hmm. And so it, the system incentivizes people to ultimately accept each other's notes. And because of that, we saw like wide acceptance of all these different note issues. Now it wasn't without issues because like there was things like in the early days of like the Scottish um, free banking system, they had like note dueling that would break out. And this is something, um, that I think could be probably another big issue that would prevent a free banking system emerging okay. within the Bitcoin world. But like note dueling was basically like you go to Bedford Town and you're just like fuck these guys and we're gonna we're gonna take these guys down and you go to their bank and you start like slowly like getting a huge account at Bedford Town and then one day you just go redeem all of it and like see if they got the reserves there and like a lot of guys would go do that and they'd say like we're gonna see if we can get like twenty percent of their note issue and go redeem them all at once one day. Um, so like that was going on in the early days of the banking system. Now what emerged was a system of like clearing houses. And once those emerged, they were a way rather than everybody just gross redeeming their notes between each other, they had a centralized way where they all net their debts between each other. Cause it's very operationally expensive to sit there and redeem between each other through a market like that. So they had a centralized clearing house, everybody'd go there, they'd all compare their accounts and say, I owe you, you know, 50 Bitcoin, you owe me a hundred, all, um, you just pay me 50 rather than do multiple transactions. Mm -hmm. So like that's how these clearinghouses emerged. And once that happened, that kind of like brought a lot of the note dueling down. And that was interesting because like in the Scottish system, the um, reserve levels went from 10 to 20% range on average in like the, you know, first half of the 18th century to in the latter half of the century, the night or first half of the 19th century, um, they went down to about one to 3% after that. Once like clearinghouses were up and running, there's also a lot of other things that affected it too. And 
I'm not a historian expert on all these episodes. I've read about them at a high level, but like there's arguments that like Bank of England was starting to influence them pretty heavily. And uh, there was a 20 year period where they suspended withdrawals, which is like a major issue mm. that a lot of people um, are, you know, like Austrians have this criticism of that system. There was a war that was going on with France during that period. So like, a lot of these systems like pretty much all do that. I mean, that happens in like all the banking systems all hop off the gold standard and everybody starts printing money, you know? So like shit ha- starts happening, you know? But examples from centuries ago yep. uh, as kind of case studies for what yep. might happen now where we have technology yep. and systems to monitor and manage things. Like I, th- yep. I think we can take examples, but I also think we have technology to help us like not run into some of the same issues. Right. And, and like, so like with that note dealing piece, um, one interesting point that I want to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I want to do more research into like how I think this could ultimately build out, but it was the, the key distinction between now and like back then is like, okay, so if we were to have, let's assume, let's make the assumption that we have notes emerge within a digital free banking system. These are, they're issuing fiduciary media. These are fractional. And if that occurs, then we're probably going to have like a broker class of like arbitrage people that are emerging and they're saying like, okay, you guys are making this promise. We're going to try to see if we can take you down. We'll take a short position. We'll accumulate a ton of your notes. And then we're going to go to try to redeem all of them. And we're going to see if we can push you into insolvency. So like number one, that would mean these banks are going to have to carry pretty high reserves to like, you know, protect themselves from that risk. Um, which is a good thing, right? It, it reduces the barriers um, of capital within this type of digital system. So it means that the reserve levels would have to be probably significantly higher. That's kind of like what happened to Tether recently, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's effectively like what's like, um, you know, I, 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 you could call it like these note dueling things or you could really call it like a redemption attack, right? Mm-hmm. And like, that's kind of what happened when like Luna started to spiral out of control as well. Um, so like, we'll see a lot of that, which is a good thing. Cause the number one, it'll make the market more efficient. The question is, is like, if it's so efficient and if we have things like flash loans emerging, where like you can effectively scale the liquidity of, you know, some sort of lender with a f- immediate flash loan, then that allows you to do these things in a much larger scale. If you can loan to make these things, you don't have to sit there and accumulate the notes, but you can actually like borrow a massive amount within an instant that'll kind of change the game. I haven't totally thought through all the details of that, but like with these types of technologies emerging, it could be that these things are so efficient that it might be kind of nearly impossible to run fractional to a very significant degree. And it's like, maybe maybe it hasn't happens and maybe it's 90%. Like, I don't even know. Maybe that's the reserve level. But there's... Um, there, 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 there's a lot of different things that could ultimately emerge that make it very hard for like a fractional reserve system to exist too. And like, that would be, I, I think that would be cool. Like there, there's trade-offs and there's costs. So like we've talked about earlier about like cost of production. Um, and um, I, but I think that like, if there's, if there's demand for a fractional system from other, other issues, like, you know, business cycles and the effect on investment, um, and the market is naturally allowed to ultimately, um, you know, make the decision of whether or not they want those things to emerge. I think that there's a lot of like benefits that could come from having fractional or potential benefits, theoretical benefits. Um, but it's, uh, the more that I've gotten into the research around it, I think the less likely it is that it could actually privately emerge because 
you know, full reserve Bitcoin actually solves a ton of problems that fractional reserve systems didn't have to compete with before. Right. And like, this goes back to that lightning piece I was talking about earlier with like interest rates. Now, if well, once that happens and that's for sure happening. So like, if you are a depository bank and you are going to run a big ass lightning node and you're going to have a ton of channels and you're going to attract a ton of liquidity and you're going to lease all that and earn a ton of routing fees, then you could have a probably, I think it's very likely you could have a fully sustainable business model of earning a pretty high amount of interest just from that without assuming counterparty risk. So not hmm. a, not even are like fractional reserve banks, but like full reserve banks are also probably going to have to compete with that as well. And it just makes like this... Um, this full reserve, no counterparty risk model, a new vector of competition with a banking system where it's just like, you're just a really good node operator and you're just like moving capital around. The The right way to think about this is now that we have this peer-to-peer payment network, where like normally that value is being captured by like credit card companies and applications and things like that in our current system. Now that it's peer-to-peer and that value can be captured by individuals peer to peer. It's fucking awesome. It's fucking sick. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. It's going to be, yeah. it's badass. So, like, now we can capture that. That 5% fee going to your credit card company, that's going to you, baby. Like, you want to provide liquidity to the Lightning Network, you can do that. It's it's basically the end of Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're burning <laughs> yeah. down the credit card companies. Right, 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 right. And we're replacing them. Yeah. I've got a great sh- title with the show. What is it? The Era of Free Brad Pitt Banking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how how long were we on that tangent? I kind of lost track. I think we've done about an hour of finance where I, I All right, don't really know what the fuck you're on about. We did our health. And then we now. did about an hour of film and I was fully engaged. <laughs> yeah. I used to I used to own a I used to own a film blog. Oh no shit. Yeah. Oh, that makes more Years sense. Years ago. It was okay. called it was called Fuck Off Film. Cool. It and actually I, had a genius feature. Yeah. So so it was really offensive film reviews. It's like, fuck this is fucking bullshit. Like I did a Six in the City review. It's like this film's fucking bullshit. <laughs> but I had this section called Last Guy in the Credits. And so I'd find a film and I'd find whoever's the last person in the credits and interview them. So in the re- <laughs> So have you? It, yeah, it was cheating. How good is that, dude? That's you can find it what? on Way, Wayback Machine. You can find and it. You on like Wayback. sold this and everything? No, no. So I did it for about six months, and then it got so busy. I got other people involved, but then like yeah. other people don't have the same kind of uh, sense of humor or whatever, and they just got. Bit, and then I just gave up. Uh, uh, but it was when Total Film named their they did their six hundred uh, top film blogs. Right. They put Fuck or Film first. Sick. Um, and have you ever seen The Wrestler? No. So the wrestler is a great film. That's a film you definitely have to see. Unbelievable uh-huh. film. But like the last guy in the credits is guy at Delhi Counter, and so I interviewed him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I used to, just used to always interview them. And I've always thought of bringing it back and just doing like last guy in the credits. That's a great. And now idea. I'd have to do last and like I'd have to make it. Uh, it would be a great podcast. Last guy in the credits. I think it would be a good podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, a great idea. But do you know what I think? I think there are people out there who are. I don't think I'm funny. I think there are funny people out there. There needs to be a really funny person to host that. Last kind of credit. Yeah, They've got totally. to have a great sense of humor. Yeah. No, that's where you go, no, Pete, you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I do. I think somebody really funny could host that last guy in the credits and interview the the person. But this guy was a genius. Like, it was a fun interview to do. Get June Seth to do it. Get, yeah, June Seth. That would be That would be perfect. Last guy in the credits. Absolutely nail it. Yeah, that's my old life. Yeah, if you go on the Wayback Machine, search for Fuck or Film, you'll, you'll okay. find uh, what I did. Um, I think we're done. Are we done? I think we're done. Hold on. Let me let me think for a minute. We we covered all that Lightning Network stuff. Um, we've done Reserve. We've done the Reserve. We've done Free Banking. Done done yeah, I mean, we, we, we... It might be one to save for another time, but we didn't get into the business cycle stuff. 
But we should save that maybe. Well, that I could, mean, like I can answer that. Deal. Business cycles are, d- are down to credit. We won't have credits. We won't have business cycles. We won't have boom and bust. We're done. We're out of here. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> Am I right? I just said that off the top of my head. No. No, fuck you. <laughs> uh, anyone listening, I'm sorry this was a shit show, but actually this is my favorite kind of show. Yeah. We drink whiskey. Sure. Yeah. We talk about film. We talk about money. We talk about football. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Oh, it was a pleasure, man. Dude. Literally love you. Thank you for coming over here. Cheers. Cheers. We got a. We need to have a. I say film night. We need to have a film week. There's a lot of films you guys Ooh, yeah. have seen. I haven't seen Harry Potter, so I don't understand some of your cultural references. <laughs> uh, let's go. Let's go hang. Let's go watch. Better All tomorrow. I think about is Harry Potter. When I'm Buy <laughs> Eric's book. It's called The Seventh Property: Bitcoin and the Monetary Revolution. Uh, it's brilliant. Well, I say it's brilliant. I haven't read it. I've uh, skimmed it. <laughs> preparation for our last interview um, and uh, when he writes his new book covering what we covered today by that follow Eric on Twitter uh, love you man let's go later alright thanks for listening to what Bitcoin did if you want to get in touch the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com <laughs>